Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Mike Meharry on again to talk with us about the Constitution. Mike is the Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center, and he is the author of a new book, Constitution Owner's Manual, The Real Constitution Politicians Don't Want You to Know About. Mike, thanks for being on again. Doug, thanks for having me, man. I love that subtitle. It's like this sort of like uh, suspicious, mysterious, like here, somebody doesn't want you to know about this. You better read it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's the that's the whole idea. Buy the book, man. Yeah, right. So um, it, it was really good. And, you know, I can imagine some of our listeners out there saying, oh, I've read, I've read, you know, a lot of people talk about the Constitution. But one thing, people like Tom Woods and some other other, you know, friends of ours. And yet when I read yours, I was like, I feel like the way in which you approach it isn't to necessarily push an agenda except for to help me understand what was going on at the time and how to understand it in its time. Does that kind of capture your your purpose in writing this book? Yeah, that's accurate. It really reflects my own personal journey of learning about slash studying slash mm-hmm. coming to understand the Constitution and the government that it purportedly was supposed to give us. And, you know, as as I started to understand the Constitution, I realized and, and was helped to understand that you really find the meaning of the Constitution in the ratification debates. That's when the whole thing was argued. That's when the people who supported it said, this is what you're going to get. And that was the basis that the people ratified the Constitution on. So all of that exists. It's not like it's a great mystery. And thanks mm-hmm. to the beauty of the World Wide Web, we have access to all of the notes from the various ratification debates. So we can read this stuff and we can read the newspaper articles and we can read the debates and understand exactly what they said almost all of the clauses in the Constitution were supposed to mean. So really, I feel like the book, as much as anything, is me holding a bullhorn up to the supporters of the Constitution in the ratification process and letting them speak for what they believed it was supposed to mean. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think it. I think it's. I don't really have a political agenda. I mean, to be quite honest, I'm an anarchist, so I'd like to see the whole thing go away. But it I, it kind of gives you an interesting frame of reference to study something like this because I don't really have a have yeah. a, a political dog in the fight, so to speak. Well. When when reading it, I thought, you know, and you, you kind of went sort of James Madison in a few points where you're like, it might be good to do this, but it's not constitutional. Like, that's a complete, it's, you set aside the debate over whether or not something, some sort of policy should exist or whether the federal government should act in a certain way, yet that's a different question from, is it constitutional for them to do it? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are things that the government is allowed to do under the Constitution that I would prefer it not be allowed to do. You know, speaking of the federal government, there are things that uh, that it bars that I would probably prefer in terms of policy. That's not relevant. And I think the overall framework, I mean, it, you know, and this isn't to say that I'm completely objective. I mean, I do believe mm-hmm. very strongly that 
if we're going to have government, it should be decentralized and that it should be limited in the power that we put at the top. I think the centralization of power, the monopolization of power at the top is the gravest threat to liberty. So I am a decentralizer at heart. It just so happens that the Constitution was a decentralizing document, and that was the intent. So I like it in that sense, and I do use it you know, from a pragmatic political standpoint uh, in terms of I think we would be better off in the United States if we adhered more closely to that original vision as opposed to the one-size-fits-all federal behemoth that we have now that basically imposes its will on 320 plus million people every day. So, you know, I'm not, I want to make clear, I'm not completely objective here, but I I believe that the, the constitution does support that. I mean, there's really no debating. I mean, James Madison put it very flatly, the powers delegated to the federal government are few and defined. Uh, I don't think you can put it any more succinctly than that. So this is typically a libertarian audience and at, you know, even the broadest, you know, people who are very, you know, uh, enamored of the Constitution. Sure. They might be conservatives who are like, you know, you know, I'm libertarian at heart, but I really mm-hmm. believe that the Constitution is a really, you know, important document. And and, and I don't deny that either. Um, so let's get some of the like, let's get some of the softball questions out of the way. But right. I bet you it annoys you when people call the Constitution a living document. Uh, yes, <laughs> that's that's the worst because it's stupid. Um, and it's stupid because, to be blunt, the, the reason I say that is at its heart, the Constitution is a contract. That's the type of law that it's rooted in, it's contract law. You wouldn't have a living, breathing contract. You know, you wouldn't have a living, breathing mortgage. A mortgage is a contract between you and your bank to loan you money to buy a house. That wouldn't be living and breathing. Nobody would accept such a thing. You know, you'd not have a li- you wouldn't have a living, breathing contract to put an addition on your house where the uh, one of the parties could change the rules as they went along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The very fundamental basics of contract law, the reason we have a contract in the first place is so that both parties are clear on what they are agreeing to, clear on what the terms are, clear on how it's to be carried out. That's exactly what the Constitution was intended to be. So when you have a living, breathing Constitution, well, it's effectively uh, self-destroying because there is no set rules when you have a living, breathing document. Basically, the government makes things up as it goes along, and that's exactly what we have today, and that's exactly why the federal government is telling you how much water you can have in your toilet or what kind of light bulbs you can screw into your light fixtures Hmm. because we've taken this living, breathing approach. And it's interesting. One of the things that I did early in the book is I traced the evolution of political thought through kind of the colonial era and into the um, the constitutional era and how American thinking shifted away from the British conception of government. And the British conception of government was exactly this living, breathing framework. They don't have a written constitution to this day. The constitution is made up of laws and judicial precedents and tradition and all of these things formed together. And it's this nebulous, living, breathing thing that morphs and shifts uh, at at will. The colonists resisted this because all of a sudden the, the government in England was starting to change the rules on the colonists. And the colonists like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, you always allowed us to make our own decisions relating to taxation. And now you're saying that we are your tax cattle. They didn't like that. And that's exactly why we have written constitutions to this day. That was a very radical thing in the mid-1700s, the idea of a written constitution. Nobody had thought of that. The colonists said, you know what? Maybe we should have some written rules. So we started seeing that evolve as 
states were formed even before the Declaration of Independence. So it's very creation, you know, actually is a statement against the whole idea of a breathing uh, document. Right, yeah. yeah. The, the American colonists fought a bloody war to free themselves from the living, breathing government of the British, you know, where parliament was effectively sovereign and got to make all the rules. Mm-hmm. The American conception was, no, wait a minute, people are sovereign and we control the government. We cause the government to exist and we can also cause the same government to not exist. Uh, so that was the, really the fundamental philosophical framework that the U.S. system of government was based on. Now, I would take it a step farther and say individuals are sovereign. I don't know how you have a a sovereign group, but nevertheless, that's the idea that that the people are in charge of the government, not vice versa, and that the government is obligated to stay within the framework that the people gave to it. So there's a lot of reasons why people have sloppy thinking about the Constitution. It could be that they were raised in, you know, government schools that taught them the whole living document thing or just gave them either just misinformation or not enough information to kind of get the sense of the kind of document that it is. And hopefully if they if they pick up your book now, they'll 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 be set straight. But even I, as a libertarian, somebody who studied the Constitution under Tom Woods and, you know, people like Tom Woods and kind of like reassessed it as I was an adult. That was like over a decade ago for me. And I've kind of focused a lot more of my attention on libertarian principles and what does libertarianism mean for Christians? How does Christian faith influence, you know, our conception of liberty and so forth? And so even I would say that I have some sloppy thinking about the way in which the Constitution works. So one of the things that I, you know, sort of picked up on as I was reading your book was that I don't think, I, I use the terms federal, national, general, kind of interchangeably. and it seems to me that what you're saying in the book is that those those words have, you know, particular meanings and it kind of it's almost like there's some technical words that we we miss because we're so far removed from it. Yeah, I think one of those words first off is nation. I bristle anytime I hear somebody refer to the United States as a nation because a nation is a specific political form. France is a nation. Uh, France has no states. Everything is controlled by the national government in Paris. The cities, and I don't even know if they have counties, but whatever other type of political subdivisions are completely subject to the national government. It's basically one big blob. Uh, The United States is not a nation in that sense. And if you look up the definitions in like Blackstone, the law dictionary, you'll see that there's a distinction between a national government and a federated republic, which is what the United States actually is. And what that means, in effect, is it is a union of sovereign independent states. So the sovereignty isn't in the nation. The sovereignty is in those political entities that make up the confederation. Each individual state has political sovereignty. So that's a key important factor that we've completely lost track of it. And even I find myself doing it. You talk about, oh, America, the nation. It's not a nation. And and of course, we're indoctrinated into that. We say it every day at our school, you know, one nation under God. Uh, I won't say the Pledge of Allegiance. And, and it's not because of the under God part. It's because of the fact that it is not one nation and it is not indivisible. So I think that's a key, key thing for people to understand. And, and I like the term general government because, you know, federal is one of these words that's kind of, it has bad connotations for most conservatives and most people that, that are limited government minded uh, because we think of federal as being Washington, D.C. And in reality, federal means that 
Again, it's this idea of, of distributed power through a federal system where some powers are delegated to the general government that takes care of general things such as war and peace and foreign trade. And then uh, the rest of the powers are supposed to be at those state governments uh, in, in the other sovereignties in the system. So, yeah, I think those terms are, are important to wrap our heads around, but they've been indoctrinated out of us. And virtually everybody will tell you, well, yeah, America's a nation. Well, no, it's not. I mean, if you're going to be technical uh, and, and precise in your thinking, it is absolutely not a nation. You know, I think there's something unique about America in that we can still call ourselves, you know, like I'm from Pennsylvania, so I'm a Pennsylvanian and you're you're a Kentuckian living in Florida, right? And so you can still call yourself those things. And I, you know, I don't know if that, I, I think that does happen other places around the world, but I think that's a something about our our national makeup. There it is. I'm using that word again, Mike. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> something about our national makeup, whatever that means, um, that still is kind of a good feature. You know, like I don't only consider myself an American, um, but there is, you know, there is that state's, uh, sort of identification that has meaning to a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. It still exists. And I think that there is wide variety in our political societies. And that's the term I like to use for states. You know, in, in essence, it is a political society. It is a, is a group of people. It is the preeminent political society in the American system, each individual state. And those political societies are different. The politics in Pennsylvania is different than the politics in Kentucky, which is different than the politics in California. And, you know, even, even places that are very similar, Alabama is different than Georgia. Mm -hmm. and, and so there are those distinctions, and I think those things are important. And I think that that's why a decentralized system is so important, because when you have one-size-fits-all government from a central power in Washington, D.C. that's far removed from Alabama or Oregon or Pennsylvania or wherever you happen to be, then you end up with solutions to problems that don't work in that given political society because that's not the way the people are wired. So we're much better off with 50 political societies doing 50 different things, even if they're only slightly different, and having that jurisdictional competition. That's really why I do this. You know, it's not because I think the Constitution is this amazing, wonderful thing. It's because it does create a framework for decentralization, and it does create a framework for jurisdictional competition, which I think is important. You know, it's, it's just like economic competition. Mm -hmm. uh, iron sharpens iron. You, you definitely want a lot of players in a market if you want the best innovation and the best prices and, and all of those things. Well, the same thing is true of government. And yet we have everybody pushing for centralization because basically, I guess people want America to be Walmart. <laughs> Why do you say Walmart? I don't know. It's just the big, it's the big company that people think of as being the behemoth. Ah, uh, okay. Mike, yeah. uh, you're showing your age because that's Amazon. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, I, you know, you just said that it's a framework for, for decentralization, and that brings up the whole, like, federalist, anti-federalist debate in the Constitutional mm -hmm. Convention. I think one thing that can be difficult, and I think as Christians— we have to do this. We do this with the scriptures, right? Like you read Jesus and you realize that he might be saying something or you read, you know, any parts of the scripture really. And you say, okay, in its context, and I got to go know what that context is. And maybe there's some sort of history behind this that will help me understand what these words or the stories mean. And it can be a lot of work to do that. And part of the, that work in understanding the constitution is it's also there, right? So 
we have to understand the Constitutional Convention in terms of like the debate going on. Like it wasn't just like everybody agreed right off the bat. Hey, here's how we do it. There was there was a lot of wrestling and debating and back and forth going on. And I think I've personally not paid too much attention to that. I'm just kind of like, ah, well, here's the do- here's a document we have. We should just accept it, whatever. But what's the what's the backstory to this? This this whole constitutional convention. Yeah, that's a great question. And really, I think there's two separate debates that you have to look at that are each within their own context and each relevant in their own way. The first debate was at the Philadelphia Convention, which is where the Constitution was hammered out. And it was there that we had the battle between the nationalists, those who wanted this more centralized system, that wanted America to look like France, that wanted most of the power to be at the top and and for the states to basically be subdivisions. And there were many powerful people that were pushing for that vision, chief among them Alexander Hamilton, surprisingly, or not uh, not surprisingly, he's not surprisingly, James Madison was actually in favor of a, of a much more nationalist government than what we got. It was through that Philadelphia convention that they hammered these things out and they debated these things. And we, you know, they talked about uh, how are we going to pick the president? Are we going to have a popular election or are we going to have this, this weird electoral college which diffuses power away from the population and makes it more of a state type of thing? You know, where we talked about, will the federal government have a veto over all state laws? That was actually proposed by James Madison. He wanted the federal government to have that power over the states. One by one, those big national centralized power things were voted down during the Constitutional Convention or the Philadelphia Convention, as I usually call it. Um, So that debate between the nationalists and the federalists by federalist, I mean those who wanted state power with a limited central authority. That battle was waged in Philadelphia and was resolved there. The constitution that came out of the Philadelphia Convention that was debated for ratification, everybody agreed at that point that this was supposed to be a limited central government with most power remaining in the state and local governments. The debate at that point was not really between, this is where people get confused. They think the Federalists were for big government and the Anti-Federalists were not for big government. No, that wasn't it at all. They all agreed that this constitution was supposed to create the limited government. The debate was the Anti-Federalists were saying, this ain't gonna work. You had people like Patrick Henry saying that, you know, there are some loopholes in this thing that are big enough to drive a horse and buggy through. Uh, We need to address this. And we had the supporters of the constitution saying, no, 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 you know, General welfare doesn't mean that the Congress can do whatever it wants for general welfare. It means that uh, it can only do within these enumerated powers and that supremacy doesn't really mean absolute supremacy. So they had this debate during the ratification where they decided, the people had to decide, do you think this constitution is going to give you the government that you're being promised? And it was based on those promises of the supporters that we have the constitution that we have today. So uh, two different debates Two important outcomes. The first, Philadelphia Convention, they did away with the whole national framework. And then during the ratification process, the Federalists won the day and convinced everybody that the Anti-Federalists were wrong and that this wouldn't create the massive national government that the Anti-Federalists feared. And unfortunately, in retrospect, Patrick Henry and his bunch were definitely right but that doesn't mean that's what it was supposed to be. What it was supposed to be is what was promised by the supporters, and that is a limited federal government. Do you know of any of the Federalists who sort of realized a decade or two later that they were wrong? 
Is there any record of that kind of thing? Like, oh, yeah, so the uh, Patrick Henry people had something really good points that we didn't predict. Well, I don't I don't know that anybody said that, and I don't know that they didn't. I mean, I haven't, I've never come across anything. Yeah. But you look at somebody like James Madison. Like I said, James, James Madison, I really respect in terms of his mostly being pretty politically consistent throughout his life, which is very unusual for a politician. You know, if you look at his Virginia plan that he introduced in the Philadelphia Convention, it was a national big government kind of thing that Alexander Hamilton would have been thumbs up on. When he didn't get that, Madison was very consistent to what he argued during the ratification debates. Unlike Alexander Hamilton, who I'm completely convinced knew good and well that he was going to try making these promises and he was going to renege on them. I actually just wrote an article for the 10th Amendment Center about, you know, you talk about which Alexander Hamilton. Uh, the one before ratification was completely different than the one after. The things that he said were the exact opposite. And I think that was on purpose because I think he was a duplicitous, you know what. But um, <laughs> So I don't, I don't know that anybody actually, I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you, people must have looked at it and said, yeah, Patrick Henry and, and that bunch were right. Um, but I've never really, you know, I've never seen any essay that says that outright. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into the Constitution itself. And one of the things that I often, you know, see people who, mostly on the left, people who are more um, demo Democrats, basically, lowercase d Democrats, uh, talk about, oh, well, you know, you know, if they mention the Constitution at all, which they typically don't, in in my experience, uh, they say, well, it says it says we the people, not we the states at the beginning of the preamble. What is your what is your response to that? Because that does seem like, oh, well, see, they're they're not giving states rights, they're giving people rights. Right. Well, James Madison explained it in uh, 1800 in a document called the Virginia Report. And this is in the context of nullification. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but in a nutshell, Madison explained exactly what we meant by people. We meant people of the states. And if you read the early drafts, it actually listed the states. So it said, we the people of, and then it listed all 13 colonies. Well, there's a problem with that just from a technical standpoint. Nobody had any idea which states would ratify if all of them would. Uh, so that was changed to we the people because you couldn't list the states and risk the fact that, you know, you have Rhode Island in there and the people of Rhode Island may not ratify. Uh, so it was really a style issue that the reason that they changed that, but it was it was very clear, and it's clear from other parts of the Constitution that the Constitution was ratified by the people of each individual state. It was not ratified by the mass of people, and this is a huge debate today, you know, in terms of of how we view the Constitution, and it has been for years. Justice Story, way back in the 1830s, wrote this whole thing. And he used the preamble. That was one of his big proof texts, that this was one American people. And that's the typical uh, mantra that you will get from Heritage Foundation, from a lot of the neocon right-wingy kind of people that love Abraham Lincoln. You know, they'll say it was one American people that created the Constitution. It's clearly not true because it was ratified by the people of the states. And if it was one American people, then at the point that Rhode Island and North Carolina had not ratified, they would have been forced into the Union because the majority of American people at that point had ratified the Constitution, and yet Rhode Island and North Carolina both held out. In fact, uh, Rhode Island never had delegates. Neither one of those states had delegates uh, in Congress in the early days because they weren't part of the Union. So, 
And that's one of the things that, you know, I'll encourage people to read the book if you really want to get into the into the weeds and understand exactly the difference between mm-hmm. uh, the one American people and the people of the states. But it's very clear yeah. that the intention was the people of the states. Well, I wouldn't even say it's necessary. In your book, I don't even know if it's fair to describe it as into the weeds because that sounds like it's someplace you don't want to go. Um, it's not. <laughs> you're you're underselling it there, Mike. Um, onto the it's green. Actually, yeah, onto the <laughs> It's actually way more readable than Into the Weeds makes it sound. So right. uh, just I'll, I'll promote your book just slightly better than you did there. Uh, <laughs> Very good. Thank um, you, sir. So when when I started, um, for better or for worse, one of the reasons I became a libertarian or was introduced to libertarian, the idea of a libertarian was through Glenn Beck. And I remember his humorously talking about how We the People was written in big letters. And it wasn't big because they started writing and realized they were going to run out of parchment and they made everything else smaller. Like there is a reason why we the people is in large letters and there's there's a statement going on there. Just like, you know, the whole creation of a, of a written constitution is a statement against such a thing called a living document. We the people is a statement that is in contrast to what? We the king or we the government. Yeah, and, and this is actually part of the whole concept of contract law uh, or establishment of governments in a nutshell, whenever the British king would issue a proclamation, you know, something that was binding, it would say, you know, the king's name in big letters on the top. And it implied where the sovereignty for this action was coming from. So when that says we the people, it is telling you that the sovereignty, the authority under which this whole document is being uh, established is the people, not the government. It's not we the government. It's not we the king. It's not we the parliament as it was under the British conception. It is we the people. Again, we the people of the states because it's clear that sovereignty is the people of each individual state. But it shows you where sovereignty is derived and it it is extremely important. And I find it amusing that Glenn Beck was part of your pathway to libertarianism. (laughs) Well, he always talked about being a libertarian at heart. And then I sort of realized that that was about all it went was at heart and yeah. um, his his whole like approach to things was not quite as libertarian, but he had Ron Paul on enough to talk about the economy. And when I realized as a Christian who cared about social issues, I should learn about the economy. It was Ron Paul that I went to and I looked yeah. up, well, who does Ron Paul trust? And that led me to Bob Murphy. And then the rest is, well, now I'm here. So, right. you know, talking to you, promoting, talking about the constitution. So, right. Yeah, no, there's so many new things that I just didn't know. And I don't know if it was like, you know, I don't, maybe I wasn't paying attention close enough while I was mowing the yard 10 years ago, listening <laughs> to Tom Woods or something. But your book has has plenty of new things in it for people who are even mildly familiar with the Constitution. And, you know, it might be said here, we sort of mentioned it earlier. It's like, there's something for people on the right and on the left to be corrected about, you know? Yeah, like, for sure. So we all have except for Mike Meharry and maybe Tom Woods and Kevin Gutzman, we all have sloppy thinking about the Constitution. And we can slip into those ways of thinking as we even even as we debate what the Constitution means, like we can use words that aren't quite accurate and could be, you know, you know, shored up a bit. So I, I appreciate <laughs> appreciate your work. Some of the um, different clauses in the Constitution end up becoming sort of the subject of debate when people talk about things like general welfare, common defense, necessary and proper, what are what are some of the ones that you find, what do people say, let me say it this way, what do people say that like really gets under your skin, like living document, clearly that irritates you, but are there some other ones that you're like, oh, facepalm, you're totally wrong here. Supremacy. Yeah? 
That's probably the So what's the controversy? One. Let's start with that. Okay, so you have the supremacy clause, which really is a truism. Uh, in effect, it says that all of the laws that are passed by the Congress and implemented by the federal government that are in pursuance of the Constitution are the supreme law of the land. And as Alexander Hamilton accurately said in one of the Federalist Papers, the Constitution wouldn't be any different if they had left that clause out. It's a truism. But today it has been reinterpreted. And basically what people mean when they say supremacy is that this Constitution and anything that the Congress wants to do and anything the president wants to do and anything that any government agency wants to do is the supreme law of the land. And they leave out the key word in that clause, in pursuance of the Constitution, which essentially means as long as that power is delegated to the federal government, the federal government can do it, and it's the supreme law of the land. It does not mean that anything that Congress does is the supreme law of the land. If Congress does something that is not within the purview of the Constitution, it is, as Alexander Hamilton explained, void and of no force. So, uh, you know, when people use the Supremacy Clause, you know, they say, oh, well, the, uh, the drug war is perfectly constitutional because Congress passed those laws and there's a Supremacy Clause. Okay, you know, I mean, so if that's true, then anything that the federal government does is constitutional. We might as well throw the whole thing in the garbage. Uh, it's one of those things that makes the Constitution itself into a nullity. And um, yeah, what it drives me crazy. Is there an example of a law that that works as like, oh, well, because of you know, the supremacy clause, this this law is legit? Like, is, or maybe that's not the right way to think of it. No, I think that's absolutely the way to think of it. So uh, World War II was constitutionally legit because the federal government gives Congress the power to declare war. Foreign trade, regulation of foreign trade is a constitutional role of the federal mm -hmm. government because you can go to Article One, Section 8, and you can see where that power is delegated. The post office mm -hmm. is uh, a legitimate federal power, and it has supremacy in those areas. You know, states can't go declare war because – the federal government is supreme in that area. So yeah, anything that you see, if you go to Article 1, Section 8, and you read those powers of Congress, because that's where most of the federal government's power is delegated. There are some other phrases and clauses throughout the Constitution that, that also give some power. But primarily, they're in Article 1, Section 8. If you see it there, then the federal government can do it. And if, they don't, if you don't see it there, then the federal government can't do it. Yeah, it, it's really, in, in some ways, you know, there's kind of two extremes. There's there's one group of people, and these tend to be people on the left, that will tell you, well, Mike, you need a law degree from Harvard to understand the Constitution. And you don't have a law degree from Harvard. Therefore, everything that you say is irrelevant. And then you have the other extreme, which tends to be more on the right, that well, all you got to do is read the document. It says right there. <laughs> That can get you into trouble too, because textualism, you know, words change, uh, meanings of words change, and you do need to have some understanding of the English law foundation that the Constitution was built on. But in between those two extremes is the truth. And the Article 1, Section 8, the powers listed are not that complicated to understand. I mean, it's pretty clear what the federal government shouldn't shouldn't be doing. Now, we can debate on what commerce means. Uh, we can debate about uh, whether the Air Force is part of the Army, you know, things like that. There, there are some weedy things there. But, you know, when it comes to education, there's no federal power to regulate education. There's no federal power to bomb Syria for no good reason. That's just not there. So, yeah. What's second place for you? These these clauses that people bring up and as, as if they were just, you know, <laughs> supported whatever view they want. 
Yeah, we touched on general welfare. That would probably yeah. be number two for me. Uh, and and that's a little bit more understandable because it does, in fact, say that the uh, federal government can do things for the general welfare. So it's not a stretch of thinking. It's not illogical to assume that, uh, oh, well, then, you know, if it's, if it, we, then we have to debate what the general welfare is, right? Right, right. But the truth of the matter is they listed a bunch of powers after they said general welfare. And there's a very well-known legal maxim that I'm, I'm not going to try to say it in Latin because I don't speak Latin. But in essence... That's the, okay, nobody does. No, that's true. <laughs> Basically, making a list excludes things that aren't on the list. So in other words, you're not going to say, you can do X, Y, Z. That excludes A by logic. If you could do X, right, Y, yeah, Z, and A, you'd right. say A. If you could do anything and everything for the general welfare, they would have just left it at that and wouldn't have made a list of delegated power. So the construction is... The federal government can do things for the general welfare within the boundaries of these list of powers that we've delegated uh, in the list. Uh, so it has to be for the general welfare. What they mean by that is that it can't be for a certain region or for a certain a uh, yeah. uh, you know political. Can't play favorites. Yeah, I can't play favorites. That's what yeah. really that means. But the fact that there's a list defines what the limits of the general welfare is. And yeah. okay. that's, those are, those are the two big, the three biggies where people get things done in the federal government that shouldn't be done are invoking the supremacy clause, appealing to general welfare, and then misusing the idea of commerce. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about executive power. Clearly Donald Trump has raised the ire of the people on the left who, you know, don't want Donald Trump to have executive power, but I don't believe I've heard them sort of say, well, we should restrain executive power. And so, you know, there's there's the whole idea of executive orders or the, the constitutional idea of executive orders, and they're not necessarily unconstitutional, depending. So give, it, give us the, like, rundown on how should we think about, you know, constitutionally about the executive branch and, and the powers bestowed. Well, the executive branch doesn't really have a whole lot of power, and that's something that has drastically changed. And I imagine that most of the people in the founding generation would be absolutely appalled to see the power that the executive wields today. We essentially have a king, and I think most people like it that way as long as it's their king. And it's interesting to watch the left go into convulsions over things that Donald Trump is doing because it's really – an extension of the things that Barack Obama did, you know, with his pen and his phone, which is an extension of the things that George W. Bush did, which is an extension of the things that Bill Clinton did, which, you know, you can go back forever. Uh, these expansions of executive authority build on each other mm -hmm. and grow bigger and bigger. And this is why you have a constitution in the first place. I wish the left would learn this lesson. And now, of course, the right has unlearned it because they're all cheerleading for all these things that Donald Trump is doing. Uh -huh, yeah. And there's going to come a day when Donald Trump's no longer in office and the next guy's going to be doing the same thing or next gal, and they're going to be angry about it. The bottom line is the executive branch is supposed to execute what Congress gives it to do. The Congress passes the laws and the, the president's just supposed to make sure that's happened. Now, he does have some power in foreign policy and, and things like that. He does run a war after it's declared. But all of this decision-making by the president is not supposed to happen. The president shouldn't be submitting a budget. It shouldn't be making policy. He shouldn't be saying, oh, we're going to enforce this law this way. That's not what it was intended. The Congress is supposed to be very specific. And a lot of this is Congress's fault because it passes these broad, uh, meaningless pieces of legislation and let the, to let the executive 
agencies fill in the gaps, that's a problem too. But really, the president shouldn't have a whole lot of power. We don't want one person running everything in the United States, or at least I don't. I don't think most people do, like I said, unless it's their guy. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a guy, so right. Yeah. I prefer not to have a guy. <laughs> well, see, that's a, that's the beautiful thing about libertarians is that we actually understand that if if our guy were in power, it wouldn't be as rosy as we predict. No, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, to, yeah. to quote Acton. And, and this is a just a, a fundamental political truth that everybody seems to forget when they have the reins of power. And, and we all get wrapped up in our policy. And, you know, that's the big takeaway to me. That's why we have a constitution. The constitution is supposed to restrain your guy so that he's not setting precedent. So when the bad guy comes along in the future, you know, you're going to find your liberties being eroded and powers of government expanding. But everybody's ignored that. And now we just have this almost vicious cycle that keeps expanding and expanding. I don't know. Eventually, it's going to collapse in on itself. I have a feeling. Yeah. So, Mike, we are kind of running out of time. And there's like so many issues to talk about. So for readers who want to read more, and you do have an opinion on the Electoral College, or you talk Mm -hmm. about the purpose of the Electoral College, I should say. And you also actually have a chapter in there, What About the Roads?, um, yes. which every libertarian is obligated to address no matter what they say in any context whatsoever. You also, you talk about the War Powers Act. Um, but we also, you know, there's one major thing that we didn't actually get to in this conversation, which is why we're actually going to just do another episode, uh, which is we're going to talk about the Bill of Rights and the amendments. Yeah. Um, so I I had this feeling throughout that, Wow, we're going to talk about the Constitution, but then like a whole other episode needs to talk about the Bill of Rights. So, listeners, next week, you can tune in. Did we tune in to a podcast? Whatever. You can download this podcast. Oh, you're showing your age. I am showing my age. Oh, (laughs) touche. We can tune in (laughs) to AM... Mm, nope, not going <laughs> to work. Uh, you can tune in next week uh, for Mike Meharry. We're going to talk about the Bill of Rights. Yes, we are. See you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.